Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. Now, since the dawn of time, the greatest structures, monuments and other mighty works of mankind have been celebrated as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there are always seven of them. In ancient times, the seven wonders featured hanging gardens, a couple of large statues, a great pyramid and a lighthouse. A more modern list of wonders includes the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal and the Great Wall of China. Then are the seven natural wonders, such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, the Grand Canyon in America, and so on. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the award-winning comedian, actor and writer Omid Jalili, whose show business career got going as long ago as 1995 with his eye-catching Edinburgh Festival show he called Short Fat Kebab Shop Owner's Son. Since then, in addition to his stand-up comedy, Omid has appeared in loads of British and Hollywood movies. He starred on stage in Fiddler on the Roof and as Fagin in Oliver and written, produced and appeared in any number of TV shows and specials. His work has taken him around the world and given him the chance to play an unusually large number of different nationalities. But he was in fact born and brought up in West London in a family who came originally from Iran. So, Omid, you're something of a wonder of the world yourself, but are you easily impressed and enchanted? Do you find lots of things wonderful? I, I find you wonderful, and uh, I've, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. I've always watched you, and, and I've had the pleasure of playing football with you. Yes. And one of the great wonders, one of the great wonders of the world <laughs> is a man who is, I, I won't say how old you are, but you're a man who shouldn't really be, like myself, I shouldn't be playing football, but you play football, and the wonder I'm talking about is the fact that you goal hang, and yet you still manage to score six or seven goals a game. It's it's one of the most, you're the most effective goal hanger I've ever seen in my life. Well, that's very kind of you. Got a very very good start by being complimentary. Uh, my goal <laughs> hanging is I'm afraid a product of my age, and uh, the scoring comes from uh, confusing the goalkeeper by constantly mis hitting, uh, so that nobody knows where the ball's going to go when I hit it. Least of all me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's not just uh, chit-chat about football. We're going to perhaps come back to football in due course, though. But who, what, who or what is your first wonder of the world, Omid? My first wonder of the world is um, the guitarist Carlos Santana. Are you mm. familiar with his work? I, this this is almost a Proustian when you, you mention him. I am familiar with his work. When my first term at university, uh, uh, I got to know a, a guy there, and he enthused about... Uh, Carlos Santana. In fact, he kept talking about Santana Abraxas. And at that point, I didn't know whether he was saying there was a band called Abraxas who had an album out called Santana, or there was a guy called Santana Abraxas. Or anyway, I learned that it's Carlos Santana had a band called Santana. And uh, one of their albums that he liked particularly was Abraxas. So that's quite a long time ago. I it thought is. far enough ago for it perhaps to be, you know, before almost before your time. I think that's like 72 or something. And, yes, and he, yeah, 70, 72, yeah. I, I had an older brother and um, 
when I was 10, I think my musical awakening happened with Top of the Pops when we saw Bohemian Rhapsody with Freddie Mercury, because Freddie Mercury is a, what you call a Parsi, who was an Iranian, but raised in India. So we all watched it and we, we thought he was Iranian. And he also lived around the corner. I was raised in Kensington. So I, I remember seeing him and, and I, because I was so taken by this music and I remember seeing him, he walked past the street and you know how com how comedians don't like it if, if if people come up to you and say, "Oh, um, I, I I've seen you," yeah. like, I, like, I saw you, and you kind of think, "Well, don't just say you've seen me. Say <laughs> say what you've seen me and that you like me. Yeah. Validate me. Don't just say yeah. I saw you on telly." But that's what I said to Freddie Mercury as he walked past me with this kind of like purple flares and sheepskin top, these big teeth and a kind of long hair and a very tight um, fringe. So I just saw him and I said you were on telly, weren't you? And he just looked at me and said, yes, I was. And wasn't I fabulous? And he just swiveled and walked off. So I remember thinking, I love music. And I think my brother, who was 17, he, he was very affected by that as well. So before I knew it, uh, a stereo appeared in the flat and then all these albums. So he was buying albums. It was like, you know, we, we had Queen, we had and all these Santana albums started uh, showing up. Albums like Abraxas, which had the famous song, Oye Komova. And then there was Moonflower. And the thing was, I remember thinking I loved it so much and I wanted to be in a band. But being a young Iranian kid, I was always around percussion. So people always playing bongos. So I was actually, I could play bongos when I was 10. But I do remember always listening to the lead guitarist. And I just knew that I could never play guitar. No one was ever going to invest in guitar lessons. So I thought I'm going to be part of a band. I'm going to play bongos, start playing bongos. But whenever I listened to it, I always did air guitar. And I, now I realize why I was so touched by it, because as I've got to know Carlos Santana through his interviews, in those days, we never saw him on television. There was no internet, there's no nothing. You just heard the music. And now I see why I liked it, because I um I did one of his uh, masterclasses. There was a, there's a masterclass with Carlos Santana, and he really teaches the, the kind of the spiritual approach to music. So he's like saying, when you play music, you're bringing light into the darkness. And he says that he always, he teaches things because he likes to see humans unfold their wings. And he had a very spiritual attitude to playing music. Basically it's an attitude that music is like, you know, soul, heart, mind, and body and your vitals. Now, when you were thinking about, oh, I'd you know, like to be in a band, obviously he's a guitarist and you, you've said you, you didn't think you'd be that. But uh, you've got a singing voice. Did you ever want to be the lead singer or a singer in, in the band while you were thinking about this? Uh, no, I never, I never thought of that. I, I never sang. I was never into singing. And it was a complete and utter shock to me that Cameron McIntosh asked me to play Fagan in Oliver to take over actually from Rowan Atkinson. And I was never the musical guy. And they taught me how to sing. And I think it's because in, in the Omi Jalili show, we did some musical numbers but I was very much coming at it from a comedian making fun of the whole musical genre because I never thought I'd ever imagine I could do it. But Cameron McIntosh said he found the musical bits really uh, delightful. And he said, I know you can do this. I know you can do it, but but I needed training. So no, I never, never thought of myself as a singer. Well, that's an interesting comment on, I don't know if you call it satire or, or lampooning things, the thing you lampoon, <laughs> you, yeah, you end up become... <laughs> brought into, or, exactly. or uh, the people love it. You know, politicians love cartoons about them. They they stick up in the, the downstairs loo. And, but the thing, uh, but, but this is the thing, but this is, sorry to interrupt you, but the, the, but the thing I, I love about Carlos Santana is that he always talks now about how we should all 
have our own responsibility to become proper artists. And it's actually very interesting because he talks about how in Christianity they had the seven deadly sins, you know, at the beginning. And one of the deadly, all the things you shouldn't do, but one of the de- one of the deadly sins, I don't know if you know this, but it was actually unhappiness. Unhappiness was a, one of the seven deadly sins because the idea was if you were ever unhappy, it showed that you didn't have faith in God. And then by the seventh century, Catholics were just not happy with this particular seven deadly <laughs> sin. So the Catholic Church changed unhappiness to sloth, which is being lazy or unproductive. It wasn't quite the same thing, but it was all about people needing to take responsibility for your own happiness. And I think that's what he's talking about in his masterclass. We all have to take responsibility for our own, rather than seeing other people as great. He's saying everybody's great, but you have to go within and you know visualize eyes to your soul, all that kind of spiritual stuff. But he's basically saying you have to take responsibility for your work. Don't look to other people. Don't even be inspired by the people. Um, Well, you can be inspired by the people, but really go within yourself to become great. And I think that's the thing that to me makes him such a relevant artist. Well, this is this is a great uh, first wonder because you've taken us into the history of the seven deadly sins and and everything. And uh, (laughs) and not only do you admire Carlos Santana, you've taken his masterclass and learnt something about the spirituality of, uh, of of where he's coming from in his performances, even as a guitarist, translating into stand-up comedy. That, that's that's fantastic. C- could I ask you about spirituality? Because uh, I know you're a Baha'i, but I don't know yes. a great deal about the Baha'i faith. Is that a very... Uh, do you take a lot of inspiration from uh, that faith? Yes, I do. And there's a lot of um, writings about being an artist and um, using your inner... I mean, the word spiritual in kind of Western liberal metropolitan elite society, we don't really like the word, but we always like to see that, that we have an inner humanity. And and yeah, I, I think there is this idea that mankind, humankind, we have an animal side, that we're part of the world, we need to eat. And we all also have a kind of divine within us that allows us to think beyond, uh, you know, the world to become a better human beings and and i think that's something that is very much in the 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 writings of the baha'i faith your inner spirituality is something that we have to feed in the same way you feed in the same way you feed your body we do you should listen to great music that's a a ladder to the soul to to meditate and to 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 kind of access that your higher nature so yeah that's that's why everything he says resonates with me Carlos Santana, how did you start your group and uh, how did you come to music? Just by watching what it does to people. And watching what it does to people, what it does to uh, a whole environment. As soon as, as soon as music gets in the air, the first time I saw it, you see the people changing, uh, the moods, the, the, the way they talk, the whole environment. It's, it's, it comes more naturally. People are more, more themselves than, than what they are programmed to be. While we're thinking about the world coming together, perhaps we, we could go on to your second uh, wonder of the yes. world, which uh, might that might relate to it a bit. Which is New York. I think the city of New York, yeah, the city of New York is, uh, I think, one of the great wonders of the world because I had the pleasure of living there for nine months. I did a sitcom there with Whoopi Goldberg for NBC. And there are, I mean, you know, there are things that are so unbelievable when they happen, Um you don't really want to deal with it in comedy because comedy is a lot of a lot about embellishing. You're trying to embellish stories. So there were some things that are so impossible 
that you I never talk about it because uh, you wouldn't believe it. But really, New York is is such a it is such a crazy place. And I saw, I mean, amazing things happened there, and amazing things happened to me. But I don't bother talking about them because no one would believe it. And, and I think I'd like to tell you this story. Actually, there's a story that happened to me. This is the story I never tell people because it actually happened. Um, uh, we used to do poker nights with Whoopi Goldberg. Um, it was the, the show was set in New York. It was a it was a hotel comedy. I don't many people don't know I did this sitcom with Whoopi Goldberg 17 years ago. Does it interrupt the story to, to ask you how you got the job? Because you know that's that's an impressive uh, achievement to be cast in in, in a, an American sitcom with Whoopi Goldberg, who is you know it, it is amazing. Star. It's a big star. Yeah. What happened was I, d- I got nominated for the Perrier Award in 2002 with a show that was predominantly about 9-11 in 2001. And all these American executives said, who is this guy? How can anyone do comedy about 9-11? Because comedy even shut down after 9-11, let alone doing comedy. Everyone might, most comedians had a bit or one joke, but they couldn't believe that someone did a whole show, a whole hour long show about 9-11 and stuff around it so they came along and got a deal with NBC to do my own show and then by the time we got round to filming that the tanks had rolled into Iraq in uh, April of I think April of uh, April 2003 and they said look we, we, we can't do this show uh, but we can use you as an actor in someone else's show and Whoopi Goldberg had just been commissioned a pilot and then she says why don't you meet Whoopi Whoopi met me because I love you to be in my show and there was no way I could get out of it I had to fulfill this contract uh, this deal. So I said, okay, well, who better than to be with a global Oscar-winning star than than Whoopi Goldberg? So uh, we joined. I did her sitcom, and the sitcom that got picked up, and we did a whole year. It only ran for one series, but it was a big show. It was the lead-in to Friends on a Thursday night on NBC, so it was very widely seen. So I got to know people there, and Whoopi used to have these poker nights, and she lived in Soho in New York, and she had this neighbor called. I mean. The, it was a bloke who worked at American Express. His name was Raquel, but he was so flamboyant. He goes, oh, he goes, oh me, we, I got to show you New York. I got to take you to Harlem. Because I was saying, listen, this crazy stuff happens. He goes, no, I got to take you to Harlem. You got to go to a party in Harlem. We got to do this. And, and, and they say crazy stuff happens in the cities, but this is the story that's so unbelievable. And I'm going to tell you word for word what happened. It'll take me about a minute and a half. So if you don't mind me, I'll tell you this story. No, it's please. an exclusive. It's an exclusive for you, Clive. I've never Excellent. told this on stage. But it's so unbelievable that no one, that this is word for word what happened. Raquel said, we're going to go to a party. We all went for dinner and um, uh, a group of us went to dinner. And then Raquel was going to meet us at this party in Harlem, Okay, which, which people who are not black are not supposed to go. If you're not black or Hispanic, you don't go to Harlem. She goes, and he says, we got to get you to a party in Harlem. You're going to love it. So we went to this address. We knocked on the door. It was on the 22nd floor of a big high-rise building. Raquel opens the door. I can hear music. It's very dark. And I said, so whose party is this? He goes, I don't know. I said, have you gate crashed? He goes, yeah. I said, well, why are you, why are you gate crashing? He goes, I said, you got to see a party in Harlem. So I found out there's a party. I thought you'd come here. I said, but we don't know anyone. He said, it don't matter. There was only about 30 people there. It wasn't a big party either. And there was people doing drugs in each room. It was very dark. And then suddenly we all gathered. We all gathered in the living room, which is quite small, 30, 40 people. And everyone's saying, hey, it's Raul's birthday. Hey, Raul. And everyone clapped for Raul. And they said, Raul, give a speech. And then someone said, no, he said, I'm too shy. They goes, go on. And then, then someone said, hey, we got the guys from Whippy here. Why don't they give a speech? They goes, hey, you, Ahmed, Ahmed, why didn't you give a speech about Raul? 
I've only just arrived. I don't know who Raul is. We're gate crashers. <laughs> so I looked over at Raul and he's like thinking, who is this guy? And I said, ladies and gentlemen, we all know what a tough year Raul has had. And he started nodding his head like, absolutely, it's such a tough time. And I said, Raul's had a tough time and he's going to get through it because, and I just said, there's been so many things that's held us down, but now it looks like things are finally coming around. And then I started singing, I know we've got, and everyone started singing with me, a long, long way to go and where we'll end up, I don't know. And then we all started singing, ain't no stopping us now. We've got the groove. And everyone sang, we sang the whole song and everyone just, just burst in this unbelievable applause. I went to the kitchen to get a glass of water. Then Raul came up to me and just said, that was beautiful. Who are you? And I just said, happy birthday. And I hugged him and we fucked off really quickly. It's a, it's a good story. And we, can we expand out of that a bit? So you spent, you say, nine months or a year in New York. Yes. So was working on an American sitcom vastly different from working in British television? Was it harder work, um, more tense because of the you know, the, the scrutiny of it all, or, or was it just a joy? It, it was a joy. It was tense. There are many differences. Um, you know, when you work with extras here, um, we're quite happy to talk to extras because at the end of the day, you know, they're people who want jobs. In America, they don't call them extras or background artists. Sometimes we call them background. In America, they call them atmosphere. That's the word. Because atmosphere, could you all move? Can you go to lunch? Atmosphere. And then they're trained not to not to just not talk to you, to the actors, but to actually not even make eye contact. So I wanted to make some contact with them. And I said, hey, Atmosphere, can I talk to you? And they wouldn't even look at me. I said, I give you $20. Next time they call you Atmosphere, $20 if someone says, hey, it's ambiance to you. And um, they didn't even look at me. So I, I left it. I realized they, they won't even talk to you. And I realized, my goodness, the hierarchy there is unbelievable. Yeah, you could you could destroy their career by doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it is very it's it's a it's a very rarefied um, atmosphere. Their atmosphere doing a sitcom. It was very um, it was very quick. I remember uh, there were sixteen writers, and you get two takes because it's a multi-camera sitcom. So there's an audience there. If on the second take you don't get the joke right or the end of the joke, literally we all go into a huddle. Sixteen writers, me and Whippy, we'd get into a huddle. And someone had to come up. It was almost like a, like a, you know, like a scrum. You come in there and you quickly, who can think of a joke quickly? And you've literally got one minute. If, if no one can think of a joke in a minute, we, we leave the scene and the scene will probably get cut. But that was the most exciting thing. I remember thinking, great. And, we, and what would happen normally is me and Whippy would work out um, a joke ourselves beforehand because they often used to take out our ad libs and not put it in the edit. So we used to hold back. And then get into a huddle, not say anything. And then we say, no, let's just do it. We'll, we'll just improvise something. But we'd already have a gag set up. We'd do something that would take the roof off. But then they wouldn't put it in the edit because it wasn't the writer's joke. So there was always this battle between myself and Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> and the writers about who could do the funniest thing. So there was all these rivalries going on as well. All right. Well, look, um, I, I, was, I was expecting a long uh, account of uh, New York, but you've covered it so well in the a couple of stories and a glittering showbiz career. I suppose I should just ask you in case we don't get time to get back to it, because, you know, doing a sitcom in New York is one thing, but you've been in all these movies as well, you know, Bond, Bond movies and Pirates of the Caribbean, all the rest, playing these different uh, nationalities. Did 
did you have any idea this was going to happen when you you started off doing stand up comedy or doing acting that you could have such a wide ranging um, movie career? Not at all. I think when I started off as a comedian, my 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 one focus was to be be able to play the comedy store. That was the thing, the comedy store in London. And then um, things, I think things changed after nine eleven, where doing comedy then became a political act, where I felt I had to do something for the community in which I came up from. And then it became quite serious. The comedy became like, okay, I've got to get better. I can't just be a club comedian. And, you know, Arnold Brown um, was a Scottish comedian, told yeah. um, told Adam Bloom, a friend of mine, he just said the difference between a comedian and an artist is a comedian will do material for what he thinks the audience wants to hear. And, but an artist will tell the audience things they didn't expect to hear, but kind of needed to hear. And I think that's where I changed. That's where I thought, okay, I'm going to have to do stuff. It's not your normal kind of stuff that happens on planes and, oh, I'm a brown person raised in Britain and I'm not middle class and I'm not English. Um, it had to be, it always was raised to a geopolitical level. Well, uh, in your um, stand-up, uh, when I first saw you, you used, to, you used to do a great thing of sort of coming on as, as you know, a short, fat um, kebab shop owner's son or do, doing a belly dance or whatever, and then um, breaking into your, well, I take to be your natural speaking voice, which is of a, a well-brought-up uh, West Londoner. Uh, that was kind of uh, your opening gag, really, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I think it was just playing with people's idea of stereotypes, and it was an idea of, um, I suppose, playing on. I think because I'd done a, I'd done a comedy show, and there was a guy who took me to one corner, an owner in South End, who just said to me, "Listen, you've got to change your name. I think you're great, but I, I, I can't recommend you because I don't know your name. What you need to do is get a new publicity shot with a turban." pantaloons and curly-toed shoes and call yourself Ali Baba, the Sultan of Comedy, and you'll get a lot of a lot of work. He was genuinely giving me a heartfelt You just can't take advice, can you, Amid? There's a <laughs> Your career could have really taken off if you It really could have it. taken off, yes. But then I thought, <laughs> well, let me play on those. So so I thought he had a point. So why not come out? Then I started doing this accent and I started doing this character that was very wild and then switch it to, you know, a management consultant from West London. And I thought that was a fun way to introduce myself, but it was actually Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard, who saw me at the comedy store, he said, listen, you need to drop this now because it's too funny. It's too funny, the switch, and then we feel a bit cheated. Whereas what you can do, you can do accents and you can do all kinds of things. Why don't you just come out as yourself and have the confidence that you are a good performer? I said, yeah, but, I, but Eddie, I won't get laughs. I won't get laughs. I need the laughs. He goes, no, forget about that. And I'm always grateful to Eddie Izzard to make me drop that. So I just kept come out as myself. And and that was a big shift, actually. So for a few years, I did that. And then it was Eddie that made me drop it. So, yeah, I, it, it used to be a, a fun construct, but it, it was only going to last a while. Well, you know what was going on there. Eddie Izzard was conscious you were getting your laughs were too big. So <laughs> <laughs> cut you down a bit. It's, it's a competitive spirit, Eddie. <laughs> we have more than the usual reasons to love New York lately. She's been battered, she's grieving, and she fills her island with resilience and pride. And the movies have always loved New York. Uh, look, we've got to move on because we're not get through these seven wonders. So the third one is, um, well, you, you tell us who the third, your third wonder is. I think the third wonder for me is, is an album by the group Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd, The Wall. 
um, which came out, I believe, in 1979. Uh, and it was actually, the, there was a particular song, Another Brick in the Wall, which um, was a remarkable song. A lot of people will remember it. I'm sure you remember it as well, Clive. Sure. Uh, well, uh, but perhaps not everybody listening. I mean, Pink Floyd are a very, very big band and they've been around a long time. And The Wall was a, a very uh, a very strong concept, uh, concept album, uh, yes. really telling the life of... Uh, well, it's possibly Roger Waters himself, but uh, it also relates to Sid Barrett, who had be, been in the band and was the leader of the band until uh, his, his mental condition went away. And it's got some, yes, as you say, uh, another brick in the wall. Uh, I think part two is is a, a well-known single uh, as part of that whole big structure. Sorry, I'm telling you about your. No, 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 I, I wanted you to give. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good that you give the context to it because you, you've you've said it very beautifully. And, and another brick in the wall, um, especially the video was uh, all these kids singing together. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. All in all, we're just another brick in the wall. And if you remember, the video was all these kids that were my age. I was all I was 13 at the time, and when the film came out, it totally captured my experience at a comprehensive school where um, shouting and screaming at kids and hitting kids was commonplace in the 1970s. And this is the first time I saw someone saying, that's not good, that's not cool. And if they do that, push back. And I remember teachers, a teacher in 1980, a year later, screamed at someone and we stood up and said, don't shout at him, stop it. And the teacher just saw in our eyes that we weren't having it. And he just said, oh, okay, fine, sit down, don't worry. And I remember that, 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 and they should know that, Pink Floyd, that all around the country, there were kids who were just subtly, I mean, there's no revolutions, there's no rebellions, but we just weren't going to let children, teachers have a go at us in the same way. So that, that actually, that video and that song made me very individualistic. It's probably why I'm a comedian now, because I like being part of a group of actors, but I love more the individualistic, thing of being on because then I'm not a, I'm not a brick in the wall so yeah that had it was, it's one of the great wonders for me well that's a very um that's a very elegant exposition of of the meaning of that track and what it meant to you because uh, you know at first blush it used to hey teachers leave them kids alone we don't need no education sung by educated very highly educated uh, singers and performers and performed by highly educated performers it had an odd ring to it but uh, I think I think you're accurate in your assessment what they were what was that track and the rest of the whole album was trying to say but you were at school you were at holland park comprehensive which is yes i, I think i would think famously quite a progressive school lots of uh it's a comprehensive school but quite a lot of um well-to-do parents there and liberal-minded parents as well and i would have thought quite liberal-minded teachers but uh, maybe not i think it's like that a, a bit now but in the 1970s it was i mean i remember bob marley showing up because his nephew was there and there were a lot of celebrities sent. I think Tony Benn sent his kids there. Yes, yeah, so really I think he lived just just along the road, didn't he? He did, yeah. And I think it was a school that um, I was sent to, um, and I, I, it was very multicultural. There were at the time the symbol of the school was a black hand shaking a white hand. So they were very progressive, and they were we were very proud that forty four countries were represented at the school, and and it was two thousand four hundred uh, people were at the school. And actually, I'm glad you brought this up because. Um, I had my first laugh um, at that school when I was 12 years old. We did this, I did a sketch, which the teacher, you know, there were so many kids at school. We, we had 11 tutor sets of 35 kids. So in each year, 
there were like 250 kids. And we used to have our own. So it's a big school. Yeah. It's a massive school. And we used to have these ta- talent shows within the class. We didn't even meet with other kids. Let's have a talent show. So 30 kids would do be big enough. And I did a sketch which made the teacher laugh. And um, he said, you're going to do that um, at school assembly tomorrow. The school assemblies were on a Tuesday morning. And the whole school was there. And, and, and of course, the headmaster is there with his deputy head. They sat on my left. And then they said, now for a sketch. It was not even, they said, we're now going to finish off the sketch. And, the, and, and I came on and I've got a kid who's hiding under a blanket. And I'm, play, I'm playing the Russian doctor who has made the uh, monster so ugly. If you look at it, you will die. And I would lift. And then he makes a noise and someone, sh- we've got plants. People shout, well, if you, how can you stay alive? And I say, I got special glasses. I look at it and I lift it up, my special glasses. And someone says, rubbish, let me have a look. So people come up and have a look at the, uh, the monster and they die. And soon we've got 10 people lying, pretend dead on this stage. And I look over at the headmaster and I said, do you want to come and have a look? And the whole crowd's going, he's got to look, he's got to look. <laughs> He's, and there was all this thing, and he was walking slowly, and I brought, I brought the monster, which is just a kid under a blanket. And they met in the middle of the stage, the crowd's going nuts, and then there was this hushed silence, and the headmaster lifted up the blanket and thought that he should play along. And so he died, but the, but the joke was that the monster dies. The monster goes, ah, and then he fell backwards. So, so they both fell backwards, and I'm telling you, Clive, the laugh was so strong. The, the, the stage started shaking. And I remember that the headmaster looking up at me, he, could, he thought it was an earthquake. And I'll never forget that laugh. And I've, I think I've always been chasing that laugh because then I've, chasing I was... Chasing that laugh. It's called... I, I want to do a book called Chasing the Laugh because it was... I, I never really got that laugh again, but it made me very popular with all the sixth form girls. Fantastic. And I, I'd like to think the, the next... The additional punchline is that the headmaster took up comedy as well because he enjoyed it so much. <laughs> well, he tried to join in, but he didn't realise there was a punchline coming. So he kind of ruined the joke with the fact that, but the fact that they, in perfect sync in front of the audience, literally both went horizontal, like, like a little flower opening up. That was, it was such a tremendous moment that I, I've never forgotten that laugh. And I think that's probably the, the thing that made me want to go into stand-up comedy. You know, more than any other band, when one listens to your music, you feel like you're not alone. You feel like somebody else is feeling what you're feeling, and you guys were never afraid to sort of put that out there. But when you put those kind of messages out there, was that ever scary to you? No, I think people want to share, um, they want to feel that other people have felt the things that they have felt, you know, and that they can, other people can describe and, uh, comfort them by being part of a sharing experience, you might say. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week at Sukarnov. Over on Clash of the Titles, the gang are counting down to the Oscars with a special month of Best Picture Clashes. Rookie won the Oscar that year. Do you guys think it was a deserving winner that year or do you think something else should have won? I think Taxi Driver should have won. I am with you, Vicky. My heart says Rocky. Rocky's one of my favourite films of all time. I don't like yeah. watching Taxi Driver, but it is... No. It is... <laughs> it's true. It is amazing. <laughs> and That's it's... so true. No one's ever like, oh, do you want a Bosch Taxi Driver? <laughs> <laughs> Or if that doesn't tickle your fancy, and why wouldn't it, check out the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents, where former footballer Ricky Hill discusses the highs and lows of his storied career. My schoolmaster came in afterwards and said, oh, you know, you've been invited, three of you have been invited for Charles, I picked Luton. And I initially, my thoughts were, where where is Luton? I I had no idea. (laughs) And I I said, well, I'm not going. Um, (laughs) All that and a whole lot more. All right. Well, now now we've got into comedy again. Uh, that's your your fourth wonder of the world is is set in the world of comedy. Yes, definitely. I think the sitcom Curb Your Enthusiasm is um, to me one of the the best sitcoms ever made. It's all about first world problems, and it's about uh, Larry David, who is um, someone who co-wrote Seinfeld and is now living in Hollywood, uh, not really working with his $450 million. Well, I mean, it, it does obviously relate to Seinfeld. It's a sort of purer version of Seinfeld, a much angrier version. Um, but have you ever met Larry David in your showbiz career in, in, in America? Yes, I was very lucky to work with him, actually. We'd, we'd, there was a, a sitcom uh, by Paul Reiser called The Paul Reiser Show. If you don't know Paul Reiser, um, he's a comedian. Uh, who's very good friends with Larry David. You might have seen him. He plays um, Luke Burke in Aliens, the oh, corporate right, yeah. the corporate guy who goes with them and actually wants to bring the alien back. And um, he asked me to uh, to be in his sitcom. And episode one was with Larry David. And um, he said, you've got to come and meet Larry because Larry doesn't look at scripts. It's the first time Larry David was going to be in someone else's sitcom. And you know, he did it as a favour to Paul Reiser. And so he wanted the whole cast there to explain to him because Larry David doesn't read scripts. He just wants people to, you know, the way he works is, is improvised. They never have a script on Kirby Enthusiasm. And our show was being shot a little bit like that, but there was still a script. So Paul Reiser said, for Larry's scene when he comes in, can we all come in and explain who we are? So I was there and and the, it's explained to him, Paul is offered a game show because Omid has told him, and he doesn't want to do it, but Omid tells him, that Omid's friend Larry David, he's doing a he's doing a game show. Then Larry David, in real life, said to me, "Well, why would I know you?" I said, "We share a chiropractor." He goes, "Well, why would I even talk to you?" And I said to him, "Because I'm genuinely bald and I'm not uh, cultivating a look." He goes, "Yes, I would be friends with you." <laughs> so, so we gave him the background, and the idea is they, the, the idea is that they then talk about why are you doing a game show. Uh, Larry and should I do one and the scene was and it was all improvised so I also got to watch him work 
and they did 47 minutes of riffing, which was then cut down to a two and a half minute scene. But that was the most exhilarating improv I think I'd ever seen because he totally listened. And I, I said to him afterwards, how, how do you do this? He goes, you have to listen. It, once, once, once you're telling me what this is about and what the scene is, I am totally, nothing, nothing exists. He's the best listener I've ever seen, Larry David. So when he listened to us and he's got this piercing look where he's looking at you and he wants to know and he'll engage with you. And he took everything on and put it in his improv. And it was the most exciting improv I, I had ever seen. And then, unfortunately, he said, he said to me, well, how do I get to work with you? I said, well, I'm more than happy. He goes, well, look, we'll be in touch. And, and exactly six years later um, for season nine, uh, this is just after, this is around the end of 2016, he'd asked me to be in season nine. Season nine of his show, which is basically an Iranian character who's there to stop him. He gets a fatwa and there's an Iranian character who he helps out. And that character has to go and do some work on Larry David's character and goes back all the seasons. They wanted an Iranian actor who is very, very, um, you know, knows the series very, very well because he interviews all the characters from behind, uh, from previous seasons. And I was the guy, but unfortunately, when Trump came in, when the whole kind of, you know, Muslims are banned thing, um, even though I had a British passport, they said, we're filming in seven weeks and you'll never get a visa. And I said, well, I've got, I've got an American visa in five weeks. I said, no, there's such a backup now. The earliest we can get it was 11 weeks. I said, that's nonsense. So I put my visa in and I actually didn't get my passport back for 14 weeks and I, I, I didn't do it. And uh, it was one of my big regrets <laughs> that I never got to work with, that he had personally asked for me. But that, but that was enough. Just the fact that he asked me was, was something I should be very happy with. Oh, well, that, well, that's a good story, but it's a, but it's a, it's a tragic story, though, isn't it? That's a, another big thing you, you, you could have done, you would have done. I've never forgiven me. Donald Trump for that. No, yeah, but but it could have been. But you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's it is what it is. Hopefully, there'll be another season. Well, applying for American work visa is one of the most tiresome things oh, known to man. It's uh, it's appalling. In, in, in a, with or without Trump, it seems to be the most bureaucratic and time-consuming thing. But I... oh, but if they want you, if a TV company wants you, they can fast track you. But HBO were having trouble fast tracking people, and uh, they thought that. Um, that they that I they they thought that I already had my work visa and it only just uh, run out, and that's when they said this is never going to work. So, yeah. I, I remember I, I'm wasting time telling you my stories, but I no, I had to get a visa to go and make a documentary in the states about a um, about a lawyer, uh, Michael Jackson's lawyer, and uh, a letter from the BBC go along and I, and I and I got it, but but the interview at the thing was so so what is this documentary about? Well, it's about it's part of a series of things about lawyers. So is it about his the, the lawyer's personal life or his professional life and it's well it's sort of a mixture of things. What, what a minute it's like being interviewed by the commissioning editor what, what's it matter to you <laughs> you're absolutely right when i first for the show with whippy goldberg they brought me in for the interview they said so what are you doing this i'm doing a show with whippy goldberg and the guy said no yeah, i'm doing a show with whippy goldberg as if you are and i said excuse me i am that's why i'm going there and he's doing a show with whippy goldberg <laughs> i couldn't believe my ears <laughs> You had to think of somebody else in it who wasn't quite as well known. Yeah, I know. Also, uh, John Smethurst in it as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't enjoy acting from a script. I don't think I would. I'd be standing there waiting, when do I go? When do I go? When can I talk? I want to talk, and I, I'm sick of standing here doing nothing. God, let me talk, you know. And that's what I can do here. 
And also, you can actually listen to what the other person is saying instead of thinking in your mind, when's it my turn, when's it my turn? So, so we're going on to a non-American topic, really, a largely non-American uh, uh, in the world of football. What's your, what's your next wonder? Oh, the wonder, it's got to be the World Cup. And the reason why I say it is because all my life I've watched the World Cup since World Cup 74. I got the Panini stickers. And my dream was always to go to a World Cup. And I finally got to do that. I went to two games in the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Oh, it was Ghana-Brazil, Ghana, which was the last 16 game. And I actually got tickets for the World Cup final, which was France versus Italy. And the reason I'm telling you this is because the World Cup obviously is a wonderful thing. It's a showpiece thing. Every player is playing at the absolute top of their game. It's a real festival of football. And it's wonderful because people from all around the world come together and you really feel everyone's together. It's, it's a wonderful experience. But by and large, we experience this on our television uh, screens with Gary Lineker, Gary Lineker, maybe Rude Hullett, Alan Shearer. We just see it through their eyes. And that's enough. That's enough of an experience to watch two or three games a day. And that's it. But I knew that I had to experience it for myself by going there. And when Germany came up, I had a friend in Germany who got me two tickets and I went. And I can tell you, definitively there are things that you see when you're there that you would never have an inkling of what's going on you wouldn't even know for example it was mine was in Dusseldorf and I went there and when you come out the train station there are these lines actually lines taking you to the stadium but all along the line on the road it's like a one mile walk but all along on both sides of the roads there are ping pong tables table football tables there's people enjoying themselves uh, everyone's there six or seven hours before a game they're playing and they're carousing and that's the one thing and then there are stories that happen in a game that I checked with my friends they didn't pick up on Ghana Brazil there was a game um, Brazil went one up but Ghana were totally dominating the second goal that was scored and remember that they they, re they replay they replay the the goals in the stadium the second goal went in and then they replayed it and the player who scored Adriano was clearly I mean like clearly a meter to two meters offside and the crowd went oh like that but the referee who'd seen who'd seen it on the thing he didn't disallow the goal so there was this it happened just well, he, he couldn't could he and the, the rules forbade the, the one billions of people could see a decision was wrong but the one person who had to make the decision was not allowed to take into account that bit of evidence they couldn't exactly. But now here's the thing. Here's a story that happened and it was covered in Germany. But to my knowledge, in the studio in the BBC, no one said a word of it. What happened was that happened just before half time. The manager of Ghana, who was a Slovakian manager, I don't remember. He ran in. He just ran away. He was remonstrating. Then he ran away. And then within, within about four or five minutes, the Ghanaian players were on the pitch. And then the Brazilians came out. Then the Brazilians started giving the Ghanaians tea and oranges. And they were all on the pitch chatting. I'd never seen this before. I thought, why are they doing this? I'm texting my friends in England. And they said, oh, they're just analysing the game. I said, are they showing that both sets of players are on the pitch? And they said, no. And then what had happened was that the Slovakian manager of Ghana had locked himself in the dressing room as a protest. And he said he wouldn't come out until they overturned the, the, the goal, which they never did. So by midnight, there's, there's a vigil outside the dressing room and there he said i'm hungry and they were giving him sandwiches and that he wouldn't come out and um there was this whole story it went on for about a day i think it was like a day he was in there 
They were giving him food and he made a big thing. And it was actually from that moment that they never replayed the, the, the replays live because you could see it. You know, if there's anything slightly controversial, they never play the replay in the stadium. And um, he finally came out and I think he resigned shortly afterwards. But it was a big story in Germany. What's the latest on the guy, your manager? Mix it and be physical, they can do that as well. The moment they're stringing all these passes together to try and emulate Argentina. Is it going to be a great goal here? It is, you know. This is going to be one of the great goals of the World Cup. So many passes, so many great touches. And at the end of it, Zeroberto is through. And Brazil are safely delivered into the last eight of the World Cup finals. So uh, now your sixth wonder of the world is something I'm not familiar with, but I, when I've said this to people, oh, what's this about? They all sort of roll their eyes and say, of course you must know. So tell, tell me about this sixth wonder. This, my sixth wonder is the, uh, the social media app Clubhouse, which, you know, like Twitter, people all join in with the conversation. This is actually like an open radio um, podcast where people can listen and then join in. So... You can have as many people as you can. It's come at a very right time for me because I don't hang around with too many Iranian people, but there are a lot of Iranians on Clubhouse who speak in the Persian language. I often join in and they can bring you up to a platform and be part of the moderating team or the platform. So you can have a platform of 10 people speaking and like a thousand people listening. And if you put your hand up and you're not a kind of weird profile, they'll bring you up to, to chat to you. It's, so you want something like a Zoom call or, you know, with, with your picture on the screen? Is that, is that yes. why I understand that correctly? It's like a Zoom call with, with all these people, but you don't see, there's no video aspect. It's all, all audio. And it is one of the most remarkable apps I've ever seen. It's, it's quite uh, natural, I think, that after we've had the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, that people feel there's a connection with mental health and not having a voice. So it's an app that gives everyone a voice. Everyone speaks. And it actually started in April of 2020 and then was used a lot by Black Lives Matter, but then hijacked by white supremacists uh, or or the people who did the insurrection at Capitol Hill on the 6th of of January. So they were using it to organize themselves, which kind of scared a lot of people. But now those people have been booted out and it's a very safe space where people can just open up a meeting. I was on one one, uh, the other day with 6,800 people with a with a panel of 40 people. It was all Persian language one with whether the title was what's the naughtiest joke that anyone's ever pulled on you. And of course it's at 10:30 at night and in Iran it's 2 a.m. So a lot of people are there. And I think I, I told some joke. This is the nuance, uh, Clive, which is which I think is remarkable. The nuance is it's a global platform, but a lot of Iranians are very scared because if you're on a platform and things are being said which are critical of the government. Um, you can get arrested for that. So what happened was we were talking about the differences between East and West comedy. And I I just made an observation that Iran, amazingly, socially, when it comes to comedy, has become very politically correct. You can't do jokes about regions. You can't do jokes about homosexuals. These jokes are now kind of frowned on, they're forbidden. And yet at the same time, a lot of homosexuals are being hanged for just being gay. Now, as I said that, they threw me off the platform and someone else brought me back on. And I said, sorry, I just want to finish what I was saying. And they said, no, carry on, carry on. And I said, so, so this is the dichotomy. A, a homosexual is about to be um, about to be executed. Then the executioner says, do you have any last words? He says, can I tell a joke? Because by all means. And the homosexual says, two gays walk into a bar 
and the executioner says, look, you're not making things any easy for yourself. <laughs> okay. At which point they muted me and they threw me off. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not, do you know what? Maybe, maybe they didn't hear the joke. And a massive discussion happened where of the 40 people on the panel, 20 ran away, 20 left because they were worried that they would be you know, implicated. The person who was muting me was saying, we can all get into trouble for even he's being critical of the guy. It was basically sharing a joke. But, uh, but And I wasn't sensitive that this could get anyone. And then 5,000 people left in protest because they didn't feel a comedian should be treated like that. And then they closed the room. But it made me realize the nuance of cultures coming into this global platform where they could actually get into trouble and because people from the West, and of that 6,800, there's probably 2,000 people from within Iran, but there's like 4,000 people from America and Britain. And it's very nuanced, this whole thing. It's very new. And people are just trying to work out what the space is. But in a sense, you know, not, not that even this podcast is in danger, um, but they're, they're, they're already opening meetings there and doing podcasts. And I find myself uh, checking the Clubhouse app now for the first time. I used to check Twitter first of any of my social media, check Twitter, then Instagram. But here it's very much what's happening on Clubhouse, then Twitter. So it really is a medium for the future. So it's, it's a remarkable app. We can finally show that Iran, you know, we can be friends with the UK. We want to be friends with America. We, we want to be accepted as part of the family, the nuclear family. <laughs> anyway, enough of the accent. And, um, And we've just got to rush on to the, your final or your seventh wonder of the world. It has to be the Edinburgh Festival. It's, it's, it's one of the most uh, remarkable festivals in the world. I'm very lucky to have been to quite a few of them in Australia, in Montreal. The Edinburgh Festival beats everything. And, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you this, that it's just the madness of it, it intrigues me. And I think we all grow as artists, definitely as a comedian. I've, I've actually grown. I want to just focus on one thing. I've grown a lot through um, the comedy shows, the late night comedy shows, watching shows, watching other people. But I've actually grown through the reviews. And that's all I want to talk about. You go up there to see the reviews because if you, and I read my reviews. I know Sean Locke, for example, who's a good friend of ours. He doesn't read reviews, but that's because he's already got lots of five-star reviews. He's been nominated for awards, so he doesn't really care. It's like Jerry Seinfeld saying, I don't care about awards. The most important thing is just that I can be paid to do stand-up comedy. That's the prize in itself. But that you can only say that once you've won a clutch of awards. So for me, at the beginning of my career, it was always about reading reviews. And just the reviews are hilarious. There's one review I read saying, sitting in this theatre, I see placards of all the great writers who've had their work performed on this very stage. Placards read William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe and David Mamet. My eye falls on one placard that sums up what I'm seeing on stage. And the placard reads, Disabled Toilet. <laughs> so it's poetic, it's brilliant. And also the way comedians, um, we, 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 reinvent, uh, we reinvent reviews. There was a, a comedian who's sadly not with us anymore, Jason Wood, got a one-star review. He got a one-star review in The Scotsman that was so appalling that he came back the next year and on his, on his poster, he just put a star, the Scotsman. So <laughs> that's what I love about it. That's all I want to say about the Edinburgh Festival. You have to go and experience it, but it's the reviews are the things that have helped me and everyone who's given me a good review, good review, a bad review. I want to thank you all 
because it's actually shaped my career. That's all. Do I'm you, do you remember who gives you a good review and who gives you a bad review? Do you does it lock into your mind? I remember all their names. I know where they live. I know everything about them, <laughs> especially. Oh, I know all their names: Bruce Dessau. I know Brian <laughs> Brian Logan. I know all these people. And and the thing is, you get to know them a bit as well. And you see, they're not that scary. And you've even said, look, you gave me a bad review. Said, well, you know, you weren't that great. Why wasn't I that great? And then you, you, you realize actually there are things about you that are unseemly. There are things about you that because it could have been a four star review if you hadn't done this. Or I mean, what I love some of Ed Byrne got a review saying perfection, four stars. And you think that's what, what is that? <laughs> And he was desperate. What have I done wrong? You said perfection. <laughs> Adam Bloom said a review. It was a three-star review. They said, this is by far, he has an ending that is the greatest ending I have seen in any show coming to the Edinburgh Festival for the last 30 years. <laughs> Three stars. What? What? Even if it's, a, even the rest of it is utter shit, I should be getting four. So it's things like that that make you think about what's going on, and you actually adjust. You, you are, they're not playing games with you. They're actually writing quite authentically. So it's up to you to find out what they're trying to say. If you weren't watching last week, Flight of the Concords, New Zealand's fourth most popular digi bongo jungle folk comedy duo, set off in style with high hopes of making it really, really, really big at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Edinburgh is a, a tough arena. There's a lot of shows. There's about 3,000 shows, and we're only one of those shows. Look, Ahmed, uh, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. The, the rules of this uh, podcast, having you having selected your uh, wonders of the world, I have to select the your my wonder of wonders, the wonder of yes. which of your wonders I select to go into our list of wonders. And it's very difficult in this case. Um, uh, I don't know that I want to pick another comedy program that you selected just because you happen to like it. Um, um, I quite like Santara's music, but I, I and I was very impressed by your description of the soul being coming but i think i think i probably do relate to uh, uh, most of all either to new york city but i'll go or the edinburgh festival i think i'll go with your last one the edinburgh festival it's important in your life evidently and it's important in mine as well so i'll i'll select if i may as our wonder of wonders from this conversation the edinburgh festival and wish it well because it's obviously along with all other entertainment uh, venues and organizations suffered uh, last year and this so so perhaps we can give it a boost for when it comes back uh, the good Edinburgh choice. festival good choice Clive good choice but thank you very much Omid uh, for sharing your your seven wonders with us thank you Clive This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.